Uh, well, it's, it's perhaps a, a bit bold to stand here in front of you for the first time speaking like this and to say that I have one of the most incredible things that you can ever hear. But today we're going to hear something that is truly life-changing. Um, if that is setting your expectations, my speaking prowess a little bit high. Thankfully, you've already heard it just read by Bill just now. Um, so I advise you to keep your Bibles open at the passage we just read. And if you get bored listening to me, you can just look down and marvel at God's words. Um, now, you might have to check with uh, Ellie over there later. But uh, when a sports teacher wants to get your attention, they say something really important, something they want everyone to listen to. They often use a whistle. <whistles> yeah, I made Nick jump. Um, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, his friend, leading a church in Ephesus. And in this part, Paul does a bit of a verbal blowing of a whistle. He wants to say something very important. Um, He wants something something that he wants all of us to listen to. And Paul's verbal whistle is, in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now, the reason I mention this at this point is because what Paul has to say is, is one of the, some of the most magnificent words that you can ever hear, and at the heart of what we're going to think about today. But um, as we'll be getting on to this later, I was wondering if I could have a volunteer to be my whistler. Now, they need to be able to pay attention the whole time and listen to me so they're ready at the right time. So if anyone think they can do that... Yeah, go on then, Elliot, you can come up here. There you go. Okay, here's the whistle. Now, you've got a really important job. So, later we're going to listen to Paul's verbal word whistle. Listen. And it's going to be, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So, when I say that again later, when I read that out, I'd like you to blow your whistle really loudly at the right point. Do you need to do that for me? Okay, go on then. You go sit down. And uh, you might need some help, but that'll be fine. I'll make sure you know when it's to do it. Um... So last week, we looked at the first part of this letter, and Johnny um, brought this instruction manual on piloting a big ship. Um, He said, if we were stuck on a ship, dangers all around, no crew, it'd be silly to, like, throw this away or get distracted by irrelevant things like red lights. You'd get shipwrecked. Instead, we would read it... um, and stick to what's inside it. Now, whilst I think that's very helpful if we were stuck on a ship and dangers all around and stuff like that, what we saw was that for the church, the instruction manual, it's God's word, the Bible, and the gospel it contains, the good news. We shouldn't throw it away or get distracted, or we but use the Bible to drive the church. It's this which we should stick to. So the question is, what is in the instruction manual? What is it, the gospel, that should drive the church? Today we're opening up the manual and we will see a core truth, one of the fundamentals. So let us again look at our passage. Verse 12, we're going to start. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul starts with a bit of a look-at-me kind of section. I think you could read verse 12 and think something like, here we go, Paul is talking about himself again. 
He's just adding a bit of a humble brag in there about how trustworthy he is. Look at me, I'm serving God and I'll be given strength. You could read it like he's just saying how great he is. But when you read verse 13 and 14, it becomes clear. His thanks is genuine and comes from a recognition of who he is and what Christ has done for him. That is why we should look at Paul. So while Paul starts with thanks, he goes on to lay out who he was. Even though, verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He's saying he used God's word name wrong, and in an irreverent way. He unfairly and cruelly treated Christians, and used violent means to get what he wanted. Many of you will know Paul's story, you can read about it in Acts. Paul was about as anti-Christian as you can get, not just like passively annoyed by it. He led the way in trying to stop the news about Jesus getting out. And by horrible means. His sin, his rejection of God and God's ways, was obvious. I think it's possible to read uh, verse 13, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, and say, well, maybe he acted in the way he had, blasphemy, etc., in knowledge and understanding rather than ignorance and unbelief then he wouldn't have been shown mercy. But in context, the implication of a state where Paul could have been, couldn't have been forgiven was that there's a state where he could have been worse. But this is contrary to how he speaks in verse 15 and 16. In verse 15, it says, sinners, of whom I am the worst. And verse 16, the worst of sinners. I think then, acting in ignorance and unbelief is added to his other wrongs. I was shown mercy because I needed mercy. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. In rejecting Jesus in the ways he did, ignorance and unbelief do not excuse it. They just added to his wrongs. This is not kind of the kind of CV that makes you go, I'll give him a job. Paul was not a likely person to turn to Christ. He was a sinner, clear and obvious. He rejected Jesus, case closed. Paul recognises this and states it clearly to us. But Jesus had not rejected him. Back to verse 13. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul was shown mercy. He didn't receive the punishment he deserved. Instead, the grace of our Lord had poured out abundantly on him. Abundantly sounds lavish, doesn't it? And rich. And it should, for that's what grace is. It's a gift, riches we do not deserve. Not just like a little bit, but poured out abundantly. Faith and love that is in Christ Jesus come as well. Knowing God's love more fully in our lives. A blessing all the more. Rather than the punishment that Paul knows he deserves, he was given the riches of grace in Christ Jesus. Now imagine uh, with me a normal village person in olden times um, who lives in a kingdom with a good king and a loving king. The village person, though, spends his days... Uh, telling other people how bad the king is 
he uh, makes up lies about the king, he kind of teases and abuses those who like the king. One day, the king's son and heir comes to the village, and the village person murders him. Now, the king hears of this village person. They hear how they reject the king, how they murdered his son and heir. What would you expect the king to do? Punish them, right? The village person deserves that. But imagine that the king took that village person, sat him on a seat next to his own, gave them riches and jewels and a lavish feast and declared, this is now my heir, whom I love. How does that make you feel? That story sounds ridiculous. It's almost offensive, isn't it? Why would a king do something like that? It just wouldn't happen. But it has. What Paul tells us of his own sin and Christ's response is like that, but so much more. The offence is greater and the grace is greater still. The sinfulness against Christ was so bad. But Jesus chose him and showed mercy, lavished grace upon him. Not because he earned it. In fact, his actions deserved quite the opposite. Paul C.V. would have ended in punishment, not chosen to serve Christ. Is there any wonder that Paul reacts with thanks? Can you not almost hear the amazement that he was chosen trustworthy to serve? That he was given strength to do it? His recognition of his sin highlights his need for a saviour. So he marvels at Christ. Can you hear his thanks and his language provokes praise and awe? Um, But you can imagine people when they're listening to this letter being read out by Paul. And they're thinking something like, well, you know what, that's great for Paul. Good for him. God has been amazing to him. Uh, But what about Bowie? What about Gertrude? What about Steve sitting over there? And you're thinking, what about me? What about me? Maybe you share that question. What about me? Well, Barry, Gertrude, Steve sitting over there, me, you, we are sinners, just like Paul. Paul recognises his sinfulness, and we need to recognise that we too reject God and how he'd like us to live. Um, How do you feel about being called a sinner? It might be that me calling you a sinner is something you find quite offensive. But um, being a sinner isn't like a question of degrees. It isn't a ranking. It's not like you collect enough sin points and then you become a sinner. You are one, or you're not. Someone couldn't stand there and say, well, you know what, I'm not full-fat skinner. Sim, simmer. Sinner, this is going to be really hard. It gets harder. And he goes, I'm I'm semi-skinned sinner. I'm probably all right. And then you've got someone else sitting there going, well, aha, semi-skinned sinner, hard. Doesn't think he's a sinner. He needs to be more like me. Skinned. This is the level that is good enough. Well, they're all milk, aren't they? A sinner is a state we inhabit. You might not be a murderer, but have you wanted someone to suffer just a little bit? They really deserve it. You might not go around robbing banks, but how you made it so that you end up with the best piece of cake or taking a toy from someone else because you wanted to play with it. You might not have cheated on your spouse, but how you clicked on that story with a scantily dressed person. You might not go and lie to the police or a judge, but that's but something went wrong at work. 
and he presented so someone else takes the majority of the blame. Or children and adults, it's so easy to say, they made me do it, when I know I had a choice. Fundamentally, our sins might look different, but they're all the same. Rejecting God and his ways. We are all killing the sun. Deep down, we know we do wrong. I do. Paul knows he does. At this point, he's writing this letter. Paul's been a saved man for many years. He's been a church leader. He's advised others. He teaches people how to live and probably lives, by most standards, as skimmed a milk life as any. What does he call himself? Verse 16. The worst of sinners. Not in the past tense, the present. We, like Paul, are the normal village person who murdered the king's son. Our CV is littered with our wrongs. What do we deserve? Well, Paul was shown mercy and grace. What about me? What comes next is glorious. For what is true of Paul can be true for us. Uh, Now, Elliot, I hope you're paying attention. Paul's verbal whistle in verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that serves for acceptance. Thank you very much. Now let's listen to what the words he wants us to pay attention to is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul's trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance is that Jesus came to save sinners. If he opened up the manual, it would be written in big letters, underlined with arrows pointing at it from every direction. Children, it's written in your sheets and you can add arrows and underline it. The whistle goes. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves for acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul was shown mercy. We can be shown it too. Paul was shown abundant grace. The same can be true for us. Like Paul, we can have the faith and love and know the Christ, love of Christ more and more in our lives. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Us. A man stuck in a pitch black cave will appreciate the light far more than someone who's outdoors on a sunny day. If we recognise our sinfulness like Paul, we can appreciate the light, our Saviour Jesus Christ, so much more. Appreciate the mercy and grace shown to us. It isn't without cost. Our wrongs do not go unpunished. We have a just God who gives justice. Jesus saves us by coming to earth, dying on the cross and taking the punishment for us. It falls on him, not on us who deserve it. What mercy. And then he proceeds to give us gifts better than anything we can imagine. We're not treated like murderers, but heirs. What grace. I do love that Paul adds in as some kind of glorious extra at the end of verse 16, that those who believe will receive eternal life. The Bible says this isn't like an eternal, a rubbish eternal life, like it was just like a much longer version of this one, but a glorious, wonderful future with Jesus at the centre, with no pain or suffering or evil. I don't have time to go into that in depth now, but isn't it just an incredible example of Christ's abundant grace? 
Do we deserve that? What a saviour we have. Let's look at the rest of verse 16. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus may display his immense patience as an example for those who believe him and receive eternal life. Paul doesn't want us to look at him and go, wow, Paul's great. We have to look at Paul and say, isn't Christ amazing? Isn't Christ immensely patient? In fact, I think we have to look at everyone trusting in Jesus and say, isn't Jesus amazing that he would save them? It might be easy to look at middle-class Barry from a good church-going family and think, he's a good boy. Saving him was the obvious thing for Jesus to do. But Gertrude's from a rough neighbourhood who used to do drugs and loads of illegal things. Wow, wasn't Jesus amazing to save her? While Paul and Gertrude may be more obviously sinful in the past, Barry is no less an example of Christ's immense patience, for he was just as much a sinner and needed the saviour just as much. Children, in your worksheet, you have a little space where you can draw people here at church. And when you do, you can think and write, isn't Jesus amazing to save them? One, way the, one of the ways that the church saves is by Christ showing mercy to sinners, like us. So his immense patience can be shown, displayed. This was the case of Paul, it would be the case of Gertrude, it would be the case of Barry, and it is the case for us. If you are sitting here today and maybe you aren't following Jesus or you're just unsure, you might be thinking, you're too bad to be saved, or, you know, I'm not like these people here. They are the kind of people that God came to save, not me. Well, look at these people. Don't get distracted by them being different to you. Don't get distracted by thinking you're worse than them. No, see the offer in Paul's words. See Christ's immense patience. See his mercy, see his grace to these sinners. And maybe, if you're ready, take Jesus up on his offer of saving. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That can be you. Verse 17 feels like an outpouring of Paul's sheer joy at his saving. Now to the King, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's like, I'm just going to pause the letter here and just tell God how amazing he is. The King and Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, have all the honour, have all the glory forever and ever. I pray that I would grasp the incredibleness of Jesus' saving more and more like Paul does. So that in my daily life I would be joining in, shouting, Amen, which just means I agree. Amen, God, you are amazing. Well, if that is the high, then Paul, ever practical, brings us back down to earth and gives Timothy a command in verse 18. So verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you a command, this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recording them you might fight the battle well holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Timothy is told to fight the battle well. Now in verse 18, uh, where it says prophecies once made about you, my mind kind of goes to a, 
you are the chosen one kind of thing. I, I don't actually think it's quite that dramatic. Um, later in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, we get a bit more about these prophecies. And Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So together, it might mean that uh, God gave particular words about what Timothy's life would be like. But it could just be referring to how the elders, after prayer and studying God's uh, word, thought it wise to give Timothy the particular role to lead a church and to teach other people about Jesus. That Timothy is to uphold the truth of the gospel. It could be that Paul was referring to those same truths and saying, remember how God's word spoke into your life. Either way, it's a bit like saying, you're the person who is to read out the instruction manual. Remember what's inside. Keep reading that out. Keep using it. Hold on to it. Fight the battle well, Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Fight to make that central for yourself and for the church. It might like, seem really obvious to do that. The gospel's amazing. But we need to fight for it, because it is so easy to go astray. And there are consequences. Verse 19. Fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good conscience which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenus and Alexander, who I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. People, some of whom would have been church members, have rejected the truth, and the results are terrible. They've suffered shipwreck in the faith, like Hymenus and Alexander. They've lost their faith. They no longer believe. They've created their own gospel and no longer look to Jesus to save them. If we don't fight the battle well, we might be shipwrecked, and so might others. After recognising our sinfulness and marvelling at our Saviour, you might say, I would never move from the gospel. I pray that to be true, but it's so easy to drift. One of the ways we can drift is by not being honest about our sin, to ourselves and to each other. Parents, maybe there is a challenge to remembering how you are a sinner when your child misbehaves. Maybe you need to remember the mercy and grace shown to you. Are you telling your children others about your children's works or about Christ's mercy and grace? You, a bit like Timothy, have been given a particular responsibility. Fight the battle well for your children's sake, as well as yours. I find myself often comparing myself to others. I I sometimes think I'm not as gifted as them, not able to do as much as them, serve as much as them, sing as enthusiastically as them. I muck up more than them. I'm not as good a Christian as them. My insecurity leads me to hide my sins I'm wrestling with and present a front that isn't true. I need the reassurance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So I can be open with others. They know I'm the worst of sinners. They are too. That isn't to say my sin is okay, that we excuse it as a church. But if we're honest about how we reject God's ways, that we can help each other with God's strength to change and to point each other to marvel at our Saviour. As a church, are we in danger of pointing others to how great we are and to shipwreck, rather than to Christ's immense patience? and to eternal life. I think songs are a great way to remind us how great our Saviour is. They help us to celebrate truth and praise God. 
Uh, take today's songs. Think of what we've sung. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I don't often listen to music and I rarely sing outside of church. Maybe I need to sing in the, in the shower a bit more. I'm really sorry, Sarah. <laughs> we all have our little ways in which we subtly change the gospel. I do so in loads of way, ways. I'm not good at recognising my sinfulness. Sometimes I, I think I'm too bad to be saved. Sometimes I act like I can save myself. Sometimes I just get distracted by life and other things and forget how marvellous my saviour is. I need you to help me fight the battle well, to keep pointing me back to God's instruction manual, the Bible, to the truth like we saw today. If I'm heading for shipwreck, I need you to correct me and I need to be humble to listen. Blow the whistle and say... This is important. Thank you, Elliot. Let's try and remember this. Um, let's try and remember this together. This is important. Children, this week—I'm not sure the parents are going to thank me for this. Children, this week, maybe you can find a whistle and you can blow it with your parents together. Together, you can remind yourself of the truth that we saw today. So, as I end, let us blow that whistle again and see what Paul, with his verbal whistle, wants us to know. What he wants us to understand. What he wants us to shape our lives. Wants to drive the church. Wants sinners to rejoice in. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I'm going to lead us in the prayer that Paul says in verse 17. If you want to, you can give a hearty amen. I agree at the end. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.